Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet, 590 The Fan, Ben Ennis, and Blake Murphy, and former Blue Jay Scott Rowland into the Hall of Fame, and good on Ben Nicholson-Smith for pointing out the 2008 Blue Jays, who won, what was it, like 87 games and finished fourth in the American League East. They had three future Hall of Famers on that team, Roy Halladay, Frank Thomas, and now Scott Rowland, the latest inductee. Uh, let's talk to Adnan Verk. Our pal, oh, in one second, we'll talk to our pal Adnan Verk <laughs> of MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. So um, not maybe there's a Raptors parallel to that 2008 Blue Jays team. And obviously, like, yeah, the, the playoff format was a little different then, uh, and certainly next season. Man, that's something we haven't discussed yet in, in looking ahead to the 2023 Major League Baseball season. We talked about the rule changes and, how, and the new ballpark the Blue Jays are going to be playing in. The balanced schedule part of things – might have uh, helped the the 2008 Blue Jays a little bit. Not to mention, like, a second wild card or a third wild card and, and all that. But I will say, some... though, if you go back and look through that roster and, and the numbers te- guys put up that year, like, I don't know that they were the most uh, – it's, it's hard to say. Like, they squandered a lot. Like, yeah. they should have been probably a low to mid-90s win team given how they outscore teams and given just like the ridiculous pitching they got that year. That's like it. that was the Jesse Lich 350 ERA year. And, um, Dude, you know, it's... that was McGowan's like the season. He actually lasted a hundred innings. Halliday and Burnett were like P Halliday and Burnett. It's just mm-hmm. the combination of, they lost a lot of close games. And I mean, the hitters look good on paper, mm. but Vernon Wells, Vernon Wells was the only player on that team that had OPS plus above one thirteen. Yeah, but they were they had yeah good. They had no bad players. players. Yeah, that's it. There there were no holes necessarily in that lineup, and yeah, a lot of, some guys that got on base. Anyways, enough reminiscing about two thousand and eight. Uh, Adnan Verk is uh, is with us now. He of MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. What were you doing in two thousand eight, Adnan? Geez, 2008, you're testing my memory. Well, 15 years ago, I was definitely working at the score. And you know what? My eldest boy, Yusuf, was born, May 24th, 2008. So it was a good year. It was a very good year, to quote Frank Sinatra. Yes. All right. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a memorable year for sure. Um, all right. So Scott Rowland gets in. I guess let's just send it to you with, like, your general Scott Rowland take. Because mine was that this guy was the best defensive third baseman of a generation and an above-average offensive player, and if you're the best anything of a generation and not a, like a total zero offensively, like you should probably be in the Hall of Fame, and he is. Yeah. By the way, do me a favor, Ben. I know if there's a hard out, but I'm going to need two minutes at the end of this. I need to tell you my story of going to the Habs-Leafs game this past nice. weekend. But anyways, let's dive into Scott okay. Rowland. Um, I'm with you. I thought he was an exceptional defensive third baseman. I mean, when you look at these numbers... He's only behind, like, Brooks Robinson, Mike Schmidt. He's comparable, at least defensively, and Schmidt, he says he thought Roland was better than him. Now, I get this whole eye test argument, and there's validity to that. If you and I are just sitting there and I say, Ben, is Scott Roland a Hall of Famer? Just quick answer, I would say no, right? I, I don't know if you would either, right? But I think what happens is you dig a little bit, and you look at the numbers, and you go, hey, sixth year on the ballot. Um, it's also important who else is around you. It wasn't a particularly strong ballot. If Beltran didn't have the sign-stealing stuff, He'd be a no-brainer. He would have gotten in. So I think with Roland, you go, hey, exceptional defensively. And that matters. Third baseman are the least represented position in the Hall of Fame. 
17 of 270, I believe the number is at 6%. He's number 18. And offensively, he's no slouch, right? Great power hitter, definitely had some monster seasons. Was never an MVP. I don't think he was winning Silver Sluggers necessarily, but an excellent offensive contributor for many teams, won a World Series. So I think the defense really does play. And I think that the overall argument becomes, okay, not a first ballot guy, but an excellent player. And, again, there's this whole argument of small hall versus big hall. Generally, I'm a small hall guy. Like, I think it should be hard to get in. That's why it's 75% enshrinement. And a part of me thought if nobody got in, which I didn't think they would. I don't know if you saw. I was doing the post game on MLB Network for Hall of Fame, and I was like, I don't think anyone's getting in. And I kind of liked it for this reason. Our boy Fred McGriff, who's been so underrated and so underappreciated for so long, would have had the spotlight all to himself this summer. Regardless, we do get some more Blue Jay content, as I do remember interviewing Scott Rowland back at the score when he was first introduced to the Blue Jay, so we could hang our hat on that. Don't think he's wearing a Blue Jay hat into the hall, but between him and the crime dog, the Jays will be well represented. So Rowland gets in. I'm happy for him. I think he's a good dude. But my first thought was, Ben, just gut reaction. I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. Once I look at the numbers, I talk myself into it. Yeah, no, I, I was uh, I was on Scott Rowland Island. It, uh, obviously not an island, though, because more than 75% of uh, baseball writers uh, agree with me that, that he was uh, a Hall of Famer. So I didn't save this tweet, and I should have, so I, I, I can't give this person credit, but uh, and I can't even fact-check this, but let's just let's believe it to be true that, okay, working on a pool of, of players with 5,000 or more plate appearances and pitchers with 2,000 or more innings pitched, of those players who debuted before 1960, 24% of them are Hall of Famers. From 1960, only 11%. So... I mean, that indicates that, and I'm with you about the small hall thing. I like that the Baseball Hall of Fame is the one that's the most exclusive, the hardest to get in. I will say, though, Adnan, yeah, looking at the numbers, guys that played 100 years ago take up way more real estate than anybody recently. That's a really good point by you, because I don't think people realize where those numbers skew. I think the thought, the conventional prevailing wisdom is, well, it's a tough hall to get into, and it always has been. And you'll hear stuff like, Joe DiMaggio didn't get in his first try, right? He got in his third year on the ballot. And that is true about Joe D. But you're also right that there's definitely a lot easier to get in the past, and now they've made it a lot harder. And so I think next year is going to be fascinating. Like, to me, Beltre is a no-brainer, right? 3,000 hits, was a great third baseman. Obviously, like Roland, was very good defensively. So we're good with Beltre. But he gets to other names now, like Chase Utley. I'm like, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, but then I have to maybe look at his numbers and go, okay, him and Jimmy Rollins together. It's a nice little Philly combo. Um... You know, Andrew Jones did good on the ballot, isn't quite there, but I think he'll eventually get in. Todd Helton fell 11 votes shy, and he's the guy who I've come around on. His number jumped from 52% to 72%. He had a 316 career batting average, which, by the way, would have won the batting title last year in the American League, and I believe so wise. Uh, he has a 416 lifetime OBP. Both those numbers are the sixth highest, I want to say, from, like, 1980 on. Like, he's, those are tremendous numbers. And I get it. Coors Field bias and all the rest of it. But he was still a really good hitter away from Coors Field. You know, five-time All-Star, won a few gold gloves. Rockies raked the one time they did make the World Series in 07. So I'm with you on not enough guys getting recognized. But Roland making it by five votes. Votes, excuse me. Helton, 11 votes shy. Helton gets in next year. The guy I really stumped for is Billy Wagner. He's 27 votes shy this year. He's going to get in, I think, in a couple of years. And he's, by the way, I think he's only got two more years left in the ballot, so he should do it. 
But I'm like, you look at any number, he's like the second-best closer. If you look at strikeout per nine and FIP and ERA plus, all those numbers, any advanced stats, Wagner's the guy. And my man Mad Dog Russo, I love, tried to point out that he was a bad playoff performer as an ERA over 10. He had like four appearances in the playoffs. Like, talk about a massive small sample size. Like, I wouldn't all of a sudden say, well, Billy Wagner, you gave it up one time for the Astros. What? What are we talking about here? The guy was nails when it was really important. So I hear you on not enough of this era being recognized, but next year, Helton is getting in. I think Wagner gets in. Beltre will be in. There's three. And then Andrew Jones in a couple of years will get there, too. And, of course, the ERA committee will do their best to get guys in. Here's one to throw at you. Jeff Kent, most home runs ever by a second baseman. He can't even get 50% of the vote. Now, I know he was prickly and irascible, and they say average defender. But the great Ron Darling said to me yesterday, he goes, I just thought he was an average defender. I thought he was solid. I know he's not Roberto Alomar, but he's had a better OPS than Roberto Alomar, than Ryan Sandberg. Like, those are notable second basemen who are in. So, I, I don't know. Kent falls off the ballot. Who knows if he'll ever get in? I'll tell you what I'll do, guys. I will go back in time with our analytics that we have now, and I will tell you definitively who is a good defender. And uh, if those analytics happen to disagree year to year on Matt Chapman being a rolling level defender, uh, we'll just ignore that. Um, so with this, you know, the small hall versus big hall debate, like there are a couple things you can you could do. And the first is let more people in now and balance out the eras. Another is like Ben Ennis, who wants to evict people out of the hall, calls yeah, up like the, the great grandchildren <laughs> of George Kell. And is like, look, uh, we're going to take <laughs> old grandpa George out of the hall of fame. Um, the other thing you could do. And, and I only mention this because it's the, I had the 2008 Blue Jays roster in front of me and a certain someone uh, played 21 games for that team is you focus on the the fame part of that word. Like I, I always find it funny when people say it's not the hall of very good. Yeah. It's not the hall of excellent either. It's the hall of fame. Were you important yeah. to the history of baseball? Did you have a meaningful, like a really meaningful place in the sport? And uh, yeah, Jose Batista has the best bat flip of all time. So maybe, maybe uh, a for, and he like irreparably ruined the Texas Rangers franchise. So maybe <laughs> there is a, a fourth guy off of that team. Uh, Adnan, I don't know where I was going with that in terms of a question. Uh, I just wanted to get some... Uh, is Batista some, a Hall of Famer? Yeah, I mean, you can do that. I think Adnan's answer is going to be no, given his his small hall approach, but sure. Yeah, he's not going to make it, but I think the whole point of that, Blake, was just want to drop a George Kell reference. You wanted people to look up George <laughs> Kell, learn a little bit more about the Tigers, what he brought to the table, but no. Listen, I love Joey Batch. He's a Blue Jays Hall of Famer. I'll never forget where I was when I had that bat flip. I was with Yusuf driving back from his soccer match, and we were listening to Dan Shulman, and what a, what a call by Dan. And, and amazing, right? We love baseball to see it, but the radio call was incredible. I, I was like, I can't even imagine what just happened. I could just hear the roar, and prior to that, garbage being thrown in the field. So, listen, Jay's Hall of Famer, no doubt. Overall Hall of Fame, no. <laughs> Joey Batch, he was a late bloomer, right? He didn't have enough numbers earlier in his career. Yeah, my my uh, kids, my own kids, uh, Blue Jays story is I was driving home from the hospital after my first child was born in 2015 listening to Jerry Howarth call the Blue Jays clinching their first division in 20-plus years in Baltimore against the Orioles, which is uh, something I'll never forget. Um, so Artie Moreno's not going to sell the Angels, Adnan, which I guess Angels fans are, are sad about, but I think anybody that believes their team has a chance to trade for Shohei Otani should be happy about. And we just uh, we saw 
a report from Andy Martino that there are people around baseball who believe that this is a more realistic possibility if the Angels stink next year, which they will because that's what they do, even with the best players of all time. Like, what, what were you thinking when you saw that the Angels will, in fact, not be sold in regards to how it impacts Shohei? Yeah, it was the two thoughts I had, one of which is Otani. Like, what does this mean? And, of course, the other one was Mike Trout. I said, okay, well, I mean, <laughs> you, I don't know what happens with a new owner. Does that new owner come in and want to spend more and try to get Trout a ring, or does already stay pat? Like, my first thought was, like, I hope Mike Trout finally gets a chance to be in the playoffs, aside from three games back in 2014, where I think he hit either 200 or 250. Talk about small sample sizes. Mad Dog's going to keep him out of the Hall of Fame, even though he's a three-time MVP. And I didn't do well in the playoffs. But you're right. The, the bigger doc is Otani. Because prior to this, somebody had said to me, well, what if they get an owner, perhaps Japanese owner, Asian ties, hey, we're never going to lose Otani, we'll give him half a billion, we're good to go. Now that doesn't happen, I'm with you. I, I don't think Moreno's M.O. is to, hey, over my dead body, Otani leaves. Rather than that, he's going to say, I'm paying $36 million to Trout. I pay $35 million to Rendon. $71 million to two dudes. Otani's getting thirty-five to forty million a year. We can all agree on that. One hundred and twelve million dollars to three guys—that's not going to work. So I think that the smart move is to flip them. And you're right; they're not going to be good next year, especially in that division. I mean, the Astros won a World Series and they added Jose Abreu. Like people forget these things. If this guy, all Jose Abreu does is drive in hundred runs, they're like we'll add him to a team that just won the World Series. Yes, they won. They lost Verlander, but they still have tons of great young pitching. And the Mariners our playoff team, and I feel like they're going to be pushing. There's no way the Angels, I mean, at best case, okay, fine, at least they got the A's in that division, but it's going to be a tough year. And you've got to be realistic, and I think ultimately Perry Manhattan, smart guys at GM's going to go, if we deal Otani, maybe not a Herschel Walker type trade, but we're going to get a serious dividend for this guy who is so valuable for us. So I'm with you, Ben. I, I, I saw them right on news. It's all right. Don't know Artie personally. Not sure why he uh, changed mind on this, but Otani feels like better chance he'll be on the market sooner rather than later from one team that should maybe blow it up to a team that hasn't really had to uh, to land the number one pick and be in the basement again. Uh, you were at the Montreal Canadiens game on the weekend, Adnan. How was, uh, how was that experience? Yeah, I got to tell a story, Blake, because Sunil Karen is listening. My dear friend from our days to score, Sonny Boy, as he is known, turning 50 this past Sunday, and he's getting married in March, and having a little bachelor party in Montreal. What else do Torontonians do? So, Got to see a bunch of SCORE alumni, including James Sharman, who doesn't love the footy show, uh, and a bunch of good friends from, from Sunil's past, and it was awesome. So I fly out from LaGuardia. I'm there to meet the boys. First thing, smoked meat poutine. Unbelievable. From Frite Allure on Saint Laurent. I haven't been to Montreal probably at least five, six years, but one thing about that, that city, they know how to do their food, and the smoked meat poutine is unreal. Go to the restaurant, have a little bite to eat, and then go to Leafs Habs. Sunil's a massive Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Nothing bitter than Leafs and Habs. And, of course, that's not my team's, and my team is playing at 815. That'll be the Philadelphia Eagles. So I paid $159 to sit in uh, section 425, or six rows from heaven, to watch the greatest rivalry will be in the sport we love. And after five minutes of the second period, I said, all right, it's been fun. Bon chance. i got to go watch the Eagles Giants game. So it was a great event, and thank God my guys steamrolled the Giants. I'm watching it at La Cage. I guess one would call it The Cage which is a sports bar right within the Bell Center. And amazingly, I thought I would have to beg the guy to change the TV. But small TV, sure. He already had the Eagles-Giants on, so it was great. I got to see Jalen Hurts and company put it on him. And unfortunately for Leafs fans, the Habs came back. But just a unique experience to be able to say, I saw an Eagles playoff game at the Bell Center. 
Um, and how about this for the Toronto representation? I know Leafs fans travel well. I'm telling you, fellas, 70% Leafs fans in the upper tank. And as yeah. soon as the puck was dropped, it was go Leafs, go. Like, resounding chance. I'm like, wow. If I was a Habs fan, I'd be kind of embarrassed right now. How many Leafs fans are here? Yeah, well, they didn't help their chances in the Connor Bedard sweepstakes by by winning that that game in overtime. And I'm thinking there's more than a few <laughs> Hab fans that are giving up their season tickets uh, for games this season. Yeah, maybe they'll be back in those seats next year with with Bedard. But uh, so you leave Montreal, and in steps your boss, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman. And I don't know if you saw the comments yesterday talking about tanking. Nobody tanks because we have a weighted lottery. You're not going to lose games to increase your odds by a couple of percentage points. That's silly. Okay, defend your boy, Adnan, because uh, I would say that there's more than a few teams tanking. Well, I think it's a tough spot for the commissioner, right? You can't openly say, yes, I see teams purposely losing just in the Conor Bedard sweepstakes, and there's no perfect recipe, especially when you've got a, got a player who is, looks to be like a generational talent. And I had someone say to me the other day, well, not every number one pick pans out. And I said, okay, that's true. And they go, look at Alexi Lafreniere. Like, he's like a third-line player on the, wing, on the Rangers. And I go, with due respect, and I worked that draft for NHL Network. When Lafreniere got yeah. drafted, so the comparisons to, like, with Gilbert Perot, which are very lofty and are not going to come true. But Bedard is more like the projections of, like, Crosby and Lindros and Gretzky. Like, everyone's agreeing. Like, no, no, no. Dude, he's like McDavid. Like, he's going to be unbelievable. So I-, I can certainly see why teams are so desirous of getting him. I myself am conflicted. I like to see my team win in the Flyers. When they lose, I say, well, there's going to be a better chance to Connor Bedard. So I think Gary Bettman recognizes the situation and just realizes, hey, it's not going to be a perfect system. The weighted lottery is an idea. It's better than just openly tanking. But there's no foolproof way to have a team not lose, especially when you have a talent like that available. So only one team can get the number one pick. Only one film can win the Oscar. Uh, for best picture in 2022, Adnan, I know at Cinephile at the Cinephile podcast, you have your full breakdown of the Oscar noms uh, that came out today. Uh, but give us the high level, like a one. What was foremost on your mind as you saw the the nomination lists come out and you you recorded that podcast yesterday? Yeah, I hope everyone checks it out. One hour podcast in total, but 30 solid minutes from the Oscars. Category by category, everything that you need to know. The thing that was foremost in my mind, Blake, every year there's always one category I say, I'd love to see this win, I'd love to see this get recognized, and one that I just can't stand. So, of course, the more important one is the latter, and that was I can't live with the world of today if Tom Cruise gets an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. Thankfully, that calamitous event was avoided. Going in, I knew there would be four nominees for Best Actor. Those guys were locks. Bill Nye, 73-year-old actor in a little film called Living. That's more like a you know, lifetime achievement nomination, so to speak. Brendan Fraser for The Whale, one of my favorite movies of the year. I love the fact he got nominated. It's a great performance. Who doesn't want to see George of the Jungle up on the podium? Hmm. Colin Farrell for what was my favorite movie of the year, The Banshee's of Inner Sharon. Long-time, really good actor. Finally gets his moment. And he's nominated. Yeah, I don't know how people wouldn't love that movie. It's so funny and so well done. And McDonough gets nominated for writing and directing, which is nice. And then, you know, you've also got Austin Butler. And I'm one of those who loved Ellis. And I will completely agree with Tom Hanks' Razzie nomination because he was horrid. It's very odd to say the worst part of the movie was Tom Hanks. But I loved it otherwise. Baz Luhrmann got snubbed for director, but it's up for best picture, costume design, music. And Butler won the Golden Globe in what was really a star-making performance. So, thankfully, Tommy did not get the fifth nod. That goes to Paul Mescal for a really small indie movie, which I didn't care for. But it's a wonderful father-daughter story for those that love it. It's for people who really love their indie movies and foreign films, and I'm just thrilled Tommy got snubbed. So everything, everywhere, all at once, great showing. 11 nominations, 
I remember when it opened in April. I said, I have no interest. This appears to be some sort of science fiction mother-daughter story. I'm good. And then I couldn't avoid it because it became a real hit for Indie Darling A24. It had like 20 straight weeks at number one. When we look back, we'll say Top Gun Maverick got people back in theaters, and that is absolutely true. But A24 had an enormous success. That's a $100 million movie for a movie that cost like $4 million. Four actors of Asian descent nominated. That's obviously a record. And it's a wildly audacious movie. Once I saw it, I said, okay, it's a little long. It doesn't always work. But, boy, is it original. It's inspired. And it features a performance that's going to win an Oscar in Ki Huang Kwan. He's the landslide favorite to win for Best Sporting Actor. And probably the best race going, Cape Blanchett for Tar versus Michelle Yeoh for Best Actress. So good for that movie, 11 nominations. I mentioned Banshee's got nine. And all quiet on the Western front. A lot of people say to me, well, I don't watch movies, but I'll watch what's on Netflix. Well, it's on Netflix. It's a German war film that got nine nominations. Great showing for them. Yeah, uh, I just saw Banshees this week. It was awesome. Uh, I was, I, I, I wanted. I mean, the 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 location shooting of that movie was unbelievable. It made me want to go to Ireland like yesterday and drink a Guinness. And yeah, the the main character's <laughs> life and you know, if if the, he had just stayed buddies uh, with his pal there. Um, I, I think that would have been a fine little life. You, you go to the pub every day at 2 o'clock, and, and you, you get to look at the beautiful scenery every day. I was surprised to find out that Inishirin, not a real place, though. Yeah, it doesn't actually exist. There's actually two islands they use for location shooting, but I'm with you. It just comes to mind, the word lush. Just lush mm-hmm. greenery everywhere you go. People have been to Ireland, rave about it. But uh, I'm glad we show the same sensibility. I had a friend who didn't care for it. just said it to be too darkly what? funny and weird and violent. And I said, well, that's kind of Martin McDonough's thing. I love Three Billboard, Dutch and Ebbing, Missouri. This is his follow-up, and I love those actors. I mean, how about the fact four actors nominated? Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Barry Coggan yeah. for supporting actor, both those guys, and Kerry Condon for supporting actors. She's got a good chance of winning, although formidable competition. Angela Bassett is up for Wakanda Forever, which is not going to best picture nod. If Angela Bassett wins, and I go all the way back to 93, what's love got to do with it? Amazing Tina Turner performance. That'd be the first actor ever from a Marvel movie to win an Academy Award for acting. So that'll be curious to see. Uh, Adnan, uh, I have one last Inishirin uh, question for you, and it's it's a bit niche, but where are you on... Barry Kay as the Joker and whether that gets rolled out in the Batman 2 or the Arkham Asylum show that that I believe we're getting. I was talking with a friend the other day and kind of stumbled on the idea of, well, what if they do Arkham Asylum as like an anthology style and it's the Joker like getting to know all of these guys and recruiting them one by one and that's how we learn their stories. Um, I I know Barry is is an actor that you're pretty high on. Do you have much interest in another big Joker performance or, or are we Jokered out? It's funny. Uh, you know, if you ask me about Marvel movies, I will tell you I'm suffering from superhero fatigue. But the one superhero I love more than any is indeed Batman. And the, my favorite villain is the Joker. So it's <laughs> surprising as not, but I'll actually take a Joker movie every year if you get one. I just think he's such a, a wildly inventive character. And even the ones that appear to be misfires, like Jared Leto's Joker didn't do well. I, I still thought he was compelling and interesting with the, the green hair and, you know, purple lipstick and all the rest of it. To me... Obviously, Ledger is, is the top of the chain, although I love Nicholson because he was just so funny, and that's part of my youth. But I like that Joker. is a little bit more menacing, a little bit darker. Uh, so I'll, I'll look forward to it, man. Like, I, I do think, you know, how many more Jokers can we get? And by the way, I did not like the Joker, as in Joaquin Phoenix. I thought that was a really poor imitation 
of Scorsese movies. He literally just took Taxi Driver and King of Comedy and mashed them together. And all of a sudden, he goes, oh, what a great film. And I go, no, it really isn't. And even Scorsese, when he was asked about it, that's the telling answer. He goes, I saw it. It's fine. Like, like basically, I know what they're doing. They're taking my work, cheapening it, whatever. Congratulations, Joaquin wins an Oscar. He was a great actor, but I didn't care for that movie. Uh, but, yeah, I'm actually, I'm pro-Joker. I'll take all the Joker we can get. Uh, Adnan? Uh, we'll take all the movie takes we can from you and uh, uh, and sports. <laughs> but it, we get a combo of both today. Thanks for this, pal. Smoked meat poutine. We'll talk soon, boys. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. See you, buddy. Uh, and food takes. Adnan Virk, MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. I'm not I, I, one of these guys that does fire through all the best picture noms every single year, but I'm, 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 I'm doing all right. So far, I saw Banshees in the process of seeing everything everywhere all at once. And you may say in the process of watching a movie, that's, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, at this stage in my life, that's, I can't watch, I, I can't find time to like watch a movie all in one sitting. So I chop it up. Oh, this is horrible to say, but I chop it up into like 15 minute um, treadmill sessions. Uh, probably not what, what uh, the directors of multi-million dollar movies intended uh, the viewer to experience them with. I, I saw like 30 minutes of Elvis and had to turn it off. It was awful. I could not stand that movie. Uh, I really want to see Tar. And yeah, I saw Banshees um, and saw Top Gun Maverick as well. So I'm doing all right. Uh, are you? Are you on my level as far as the number of movies that you've seen, the uh, Best Picture noms? Well, I am having trouble finding the whole list right now, so maybe All not. quiet on the no, Western No, I got front. it. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Uh, so, Banshees of Inisherin was my, yeah, my favorite movie last year. I saw everything everywhere all at once. Um, I saw Top Gun Maverick. I really liked Triangle of Sadness. Yeah, I need to see that one. Um, the others I have not seen. All right. You're doing all right. Just so what am I at? One. Four? Yeah, that's pretty good. That's fine. I have no interest in watching Avatar. I should probably watch Elvis and the Fablemans and Tar. Man, the, and the Avatar thing is is mind-bending to me because they make quadrillions of dollars. The first one was horrific. Like, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know how anyone can defend that movie. It's Dances with Wolves with, like, cool effects, I suppose. Are there even that? Like, has anyone ever rewatched that movie? I know I haven't. It's available to, to stream on Netflix, I think. But, yeah, I, I have no interest in watching this most recent Avatar. And I guess the, the the whole reason you're supposed to respect it is because of the technological achievement. I like also I, think that that's one that, you know, when you're doing a, an Oscar binge, as people do ahead of Oscar season, you kind of, like, I'd imagine that is one that is just significantly better in the theater. Yeah. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, honestly, if you don't see it in the theater, what do you do? Like, I can't, again, yeah, I can't imagine rewatching Avatar. I saw it in theaters with the 3D glasses and the IMAX thing, and okay, it made it sort of interesting. Story stinks. Like, yeah, it's been done before. Unobtainium is the, the material they're trying to obtain. From the, the Avatar people. But so, they can't because it's unobtained. You, you, you can't obtain it. Look, I, right. I saw that movie long enough ago that I'm maybe not remembering it completely accurately, but I do remember it not being a very good movie-going experience. Uh, I was in there late because I may have been doing some things before the movie started. Yeah, uh, and then I, the had a, experience. I had a very poor seat. Uh, for a 3D movie, <laughs> and uh, especially a, a very long one. So maybe I need to give it a, a fair shake at some point. 
Uh, but I can't imagine my approach would be any different whatsoever the second time either. No, I can't imagine. All right, uh, let's take a break and come back, and um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit of uh, Rangers Leafs, which is also on Sportsnet tonight. Mm-hmm. We got a little glimpse into some of your spreadsheets. You got you got goaltending stats because Ilya yeah. Samsonov is going to make a fourth consecutive start tonight against his uh, original sixth rival in the uh, New York Rangers. I also have uh, some tickets to give away Ooh. after the break. Yeah, you got tickets to give away, and Kevin Biggio's name was trending on Twitter. Maybe we'll talk about him a little bit. Uh, as the, Someone has to. The, the show progresses. Uh, it's the Fan Drive Time. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fan Drive Time. Blake Murphy, Ben Ennis. We got Leafs action coming up. We got Raptors action coming up. We got some non-rumor Blue Jays rumors we could talk about. But first, a little song we're playing back, we're coming back to, is Accidents by Alexis on Fire with a purpose. Alexis on Fire coming to Budweiser stage this summer, June 16th, playing with my guys in Pup and Mets. We're giving away tickets all week long Gave them away Monday and Tuesday, today, tomorrow, Friday. That's how the week works. All you have to do is tune into the fan drive time every day, listen for the code word, and text that code word to 590-590, and you'll be entered for a chance to win a pair of tickets to the show. Again, Alexis on Fire, Pup, Mets, Budweiser Stage, June 16th. It will be the unofficial kickoff of Toronto Summer. Uh, that's how I'm branding it, whether they like it or not. Today's code word is accidents. So text ACCIDENTS to 590-590 right now for your chance to win. We're giving away another pair of tickets tomorrow and Friday. Uh, but if you don't win with us and you missed the pre-sale window earlier in the week, make sure you go to Ticketmaster.ca starting this Friday at 10 a.m. for tickets that way. Uh, but again, ACCIDENTS to 590-590 right now. And then we'll have two more code words the rest of the week. Uh, hope you win. Ben Ennis. Yeah. yeah. What's up? How's it going? <laughs> Ilya Samsonov uh, starting a fourth consecutive game tonight. We haven't seen that happen in a non-injury situation for the Leafs yet. I know we kicked around some thoughts on that yesterday, but it's now official. And I sent yeah. you some numbers a little yeah. earlier. I sent you just a, just a little look at, at some spreadsheet stuff. And I, I broke Samsonov and Murray down in a number of different categories. What did you make of that? Well, here's what I made of it. And one, I'm I'm offended that you wouldn't just send me the entire spreadsheet because, you know, it's proprietary information that you, you don't want getting out there. Look, so. I've said this to Bunkus before, too. <laughs> everybody eats, but everybody doesn't need the recipe. <laughs> All right. I, I, yeah. I, I think I know what goes into this. I just don't have the time or the inclination to do it. No, so it's I'm just glad. a job. <laughs> what, to make spreadsheets? No. Yeah, it's your job, I guess, Mr. Spreadsheets. What I went, what I took away from this is that Ilya Samsonov owns Matt Murray in just about every statistical category when it comes to breaking down their two seasons this year, and the sample size is remarkably similar. Mm-hmm. So can't really parse that way. One guy's having a way better season than the other, and I guess you could have 
infer that considering he's making a fourth consecutive start. I will stick to my guns and say that given their druthers, the Toronto Maple Leafs would prefer Matt Murray to take the reins for game one of the postseason considering his playoff pedigree. But maybe long-term it is better if Ilya Samsonov arrives as the younger guy. You can build around him. He's a restricted free agent, so he's going to get paid, and especially if he continues this pace the rest of the season and, God forbid, wins a round or two in the postseason. Like, you thought Jack Campbell's 5x5 was rich? Yeah, and you'd be way more comfortable, obviously, paying a Samsonov that just won you a round or two or a Stanley Cup. Like, obviously, no dollar amount is probably too high for for that type of goaltending. But no, he's just owning Matt Murray this season. So I know that people can't see this little snapshot of a spreadsheet that I'm talking about. So let me run you through it just very quickly. Uh, And the impetus for me looking up these numbers is uh, Kipper and Bourne had uh, a guess. And I I was listening to it on the walk-in and I missed who it was. But that guest pointed out that Matt Murray had, I think he said the third or fourth worst save percentage in the league uh, at five on five in tie games. Mm. That's not great. That's not where you want to be when games are close. So I pulled Samsonov and Murray's numbers in a number of different situations. Uh, Samsonov, of course, with the 920 to 911 edge overall in save percentage, uh, has Murray beat pretty significantly in all five-on-five situations, especially in tie games. Uh, It's a 938 to 903 gap in five-on-five tie game save percentage. Um, If we filter that a little looser to just like close games games that are within a goal samsonov still hasn't beat high danger opportunities samsonov hasn't beat as well uh, the one area that murray's been a little steadier is on the penalty kill and then there was one thing that was interesting just to notice and i i have no this is one of those things ben that i've talked about before the numbers say one thing but i don't have a good why i don't have an explanation why Something like rebounds or freezes and things like that, I can I can understand that goalies have different styles or whatever. For some reason, when Matt Murray is the goaltender, the Leafs give up almost twice as many rush opportunities as they do for Samsonov. And that, even though I just went through all these stats that show Samsonov's been better in a lot of different situations, we know that rush opportunities are pretty good opportunities. And maybe there's something to the Leafs just haven't played their best defensive hockey uh, when Murray's between the pipes. I don't know. I got to dig in on that one a little further. No, that's a great, great point. So, yeah, while it's a pretty equal sample, it's still a limited sample for both guys. And, yeah, maybe Matt Murray is playing in more games where the defense is loose and giving up turnovers. Maybe, yeah, sort of by by turnovers per game or something, which is an inexact stat uh, in uh, in NHL terms anyways. Um, Yeah, no, it's a great point about the, 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 the games that are close and tied or within one goal because that tracks too, right? Like go back to that mm-hmm. Saturday game against the Bruins. What was it like a, a minute and 10 seconds left? And it's a good chance, I guess, but it's a savable puck and it goes through Matt Murray to the back of the net and the Leafs lose a game against a team that they would like to, to face in the postseason this year. And it's funny how these things get like how your interpretation of the stats um, is based at least a little bit on how you come across them, which is, you know, that that guest on Kipper and Bourne says, well, Matt Murray's near the bottom of the league in five-on-five tied save percentage. And that's a, an alarming note. And then when I was looking through the numbers, if I had just sent you just the numbers without that context, I think the single number that would have stood out the most in all of that is that Samsonov is just unbelievably good 
in those situations, like almost a 940 in tie games at even strength. Like, sure, Murray has struggled in in those situations relative to league average, but Samsonov's been a monster in quote-unquote clutch situations. Is that a repeatable skill, though? Because we talk about clutch in baseball and it being like, hey, you can have a year where you're clutch and you can have a clutch moment, but the idea that that's now like a, a character trait of yours, it, it doesn't really track. And uh, it's just nobody's able to do that. And if good hitters are just generally good in all circumstances, including clutch, does that mean that Ilya Samsonov is clutch? Because, again, it would, it would, it would track as, as far as the eye test is concerned, and especially recent history. It would also though counter to my point about the organization wanting Matt Murray to start game one because he's so clutch and has a couple of rings to his name. Seemed pretty clutch for the Penguins also, by the way, <laughs> b- back in those days. That was, a, it was a, like a half decade ago. But yeah, I, I, is that a thing that now Ilya Samsonov is a clutch goalie? He makes the big save when it matters most? This is, this is how I feel about clutch in most sports is it's a really fun... Um, descriptive, backward-looking thing. I don't think there's a lot of predictive value in clutch stuff just because we're talking tiny, tiny samples and goaltenders are so noisy as it is. I will say uh, among the, how many are we looking at here? 44 goalies over the last three years who have played at least 1,000 minutes. Uh, Samsonov is 14th. So, so we're looking at a three-season sample where he's been pretty good in those situations. Now, Leaf fans might get turned off by this stat when you uh, see just a couple spots ahead of him. Freddie Anderson uh, yeah. also. Well, that was a guy I was going to bring up because he's so unclutched because he's never won a game seven, right? Right. And, and these are only regular <laughs> season stats that I'm looking at. Um, but again, yeah. Matt Murray kind of in the bottom third, Samsonov in the top third. But I don't think, like, right away, that also tells you that, well, if you if we include the last two years prior to this one, these guys get a little closer. They normalize a little bit. So I would imagine if I had the time in the last 13 minutes of our show to run some year-over-year regressions, it's not the most predictive of stats. Okay. Um, That stinks. (laughs) Sorry, man. (laughs) How do you feel about Linus Olmark? Because he's like way better than everyone else in the league in this sample. Like it's not even close. I think he plays for a really good team too. I mean, that's that's a, a large part of it, uh, no question. Also, although, although Thomas Grice is uh, is up there too, and he has not mm. played for a really good team, so who knows? Mm. You're not, yeah, you're not necessarily selling me on on this uh, on this graphic. But this is we're talking it out. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, it'll be interesting again to see how long Ilya Samsonov can ride this streak of being this team's unquestioned number one goalie, and apparently played his best game of the year in his last start. Um, He's got, a, he's got a playoff team uh, against him tonight and uh, his fellow countryman, Igor Shosturkin, mm-hmm. as well. Austin Matthews is uh, reunited from the start of the game with Mitch Marner tonight, which I don't care all that much about. I get it. They love playing with each other, and it's been one of the most dominating offensive duos and throw Michael Bunting in there, offensive lines in the NHL since they've been together for a prolonged period of time. But I don't mind going away from it for a little bit. And I don't mind mixing it up in the postseason. That's what a coach is supposed to do. Like, I don't I, – I, I'm sure Austin Matthews would prefer to be with the 100-point the assist man more <laughs> often than not. I also think he's more than capable of creating goals without him. Uh, I do think also the William Nylander-John Tavares pairing are going to struggle in their own zone. And if you want, like, a more balanced – like, on the road, it seems like that's – 
it's unlikely that we see it as much deployed when the Leafs don't have last change. When you have last change and, and, and you don't have to worry about a defensive zone draw with John Tavares and, and William Nylander being stuck up against the, the other team's number one line, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. But the, the Leafs have two very good lines, and any way you slice it and dice it, it's, it doesn't really impact me too much either way yeah this these are the buttons that a coach presses over 82 right and like you said you want them all feeling ready and comfortable if you got to mix it up in the playoffs and and this kind of came about after that really really poor first period the other night um they mixed up the defensive pairings as well which i think we're going to get another look at uh tonight based on the practice lines from yesterday so yeah this is this is the time of year right they're not catching boston they're at no risk of missing the playoffs the two goals right now are get get to the playoffs as healthy as possible and get to the playoffs as comfortable mixing things up and, and you know finding some stylistic and lineup versatility as you can that that's it there's not the points don't really matter that much the individual stuff doesn't really matter that much they're in just play around and keep everything on the level mode yeah and keep everybody entertained uh so that's on sportsnet tonight and then later tonight, oh speaking of entertained what matthew's mic'd up for the game oh yeah yeah so uh, yeah so and he's mic'd up because it's a tnt game but sportsnet gets to share in all of the accoutrement with the national broadcast of the United States, which I don't. Why, why can't Sportsnet just mic people up on their own national games or local games? I don't know. But yeah, Austin Matthews mic'd up tonight. That's a so- question for in Microsoft Teams, not for on the air. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe you'll hear Austin Matthews say, "Boy, Mitch, I love playing with you, and I hope." that our line is never broken up again, which would give you an indication as to um, the future of the, that Leafs number one line. So that, that's on Sportsnet. And then later tonight, uh, you can watch Blake Murphy on the pregame show for Raptors Kings on Sportsnet from the aforementioned Sacramento Kings. Haven't even had a 500 record since they last made the playoffs in 2006. Yeah. <laughs> which is insane. But this team is legit good. Uh, they lead the NBA in in points, that that seems like a tough formula for a team that's like among the worst teams in the NBA in effective field goal percentage. So I, I might bang the, the the Kings over tonight. To a tough matchup for for a team trying to go on a, a run, I suppose. It is, and marks. obviously Sacramento is. You know they've been very good in general, um, but one of the things that makes this matchup particularly tough is that Sacramento is really good at Toronto's style of game. Uh, The Kings are one of the best teams in the league in transition defense, so limiting an opponent's how often they can get out and run in transition. That's the only way the Raptors can score. And then limiting them once they... You know, even if they do run in transition, keeping the minimizing the damage, they're also a very good transition offense because even though in the half court they're a bit more old school because they run a lot through Demontis Sabonis, uh, dribble handoffs and some post passing and stuff like that. They have De'Aaron Fox, who is like the fastest guy. Uh, so even when, like when the Kings were bad, they were kind of must watch in recent years because De'Aaron Fox is like a one man fast break. So if the Raptors want to get into a track meet, you know, that's their only path to really scoring a lot. But man, it might not go that well. So as uh, most games haven't. Yeah, I don't I don't know what this is going to look like. And you've also got a, a Sacramento team that last time they played. The 124-123 final score, the the Kings won that one. Raptors blew a fourth quarter, a small fourth quarter lead and couldn't get back into it. That was a game where 
first of all, DeMontis Sabonis had like 20 rebounds in that game. Um, but it was a game where some of Sacramento's shooters didn't shoot particularly well, and the Raptors still got obliterated on the uh, on the three point uh, <laughs> shooting, 17 to six in that one. So uh, when you have DeMontis Sabonis and you play a defensive style like the Raptors, where they're going to send if he's getting the ball. In the post, they're going to send two to him on the catch. If he gets the ball at the elbow, they're going to try to make him uncomfortable and get an extra body in his passing lanes. Um, he's going to have a lot of opportunities to kick out the shooters. So, well, that has been something that, as I wrote yesterday, the Raptors have not done a great job of. Uh, they are the worst team in the league defending spot-up shooting. So, yeah, we'll see how this one goes against the league's highest-scoring team uh, in points per game and one of the league's highest-scoring teams if we control for uh, for pace as well because they do juice their numbers a little bit by playing so fast, uh, but they're pretty good when we control for pace anyway. Look, uh, I would just put out a warning for any aircraft going over that arena in Sacramento uh, at about, what, uh, 1230 Eastern time. There's just going to be a beam shooting out of that thing uh, tonight. All right, and lastly, we teased it. I, I don't know, like... It's sometimes things trend on Twitter, and and I have a difficult time getting to the bottom of it. I just saw Biggio was trending. You on don't have Twitter. a difficult time getting to the bottom of it. You just you spent your whole day today texting me, being like, "I see this is trending. What's it about?" That's, yeah, it's not a well, difficult it, time. And, and well, yeah, you're right. Yeah, because I just ask you, and you tell me. <laughs> but the, uh, I'm not even gonna. I mean, this is. Even uh, this isn't even a Boboa Twitter account that that has this trade rumor, so I'm not even going to give it the, the time of day. And I think Boboa's kind of I'm out on Boboa as well. So let but, let me throw it at you a different way then. So basically, the what ended up what people ended up running with is basically could you flip Cabin Biggio, who mm-hmm. as a utility guy and a left-handed bat on a team that now skews a little more lefty heavy. Um, could you flip him for an extra reliever? The reliever in particular that was being discussed is Scott Barlow of the Royals. That's mm-hmm. not necessarily, you know, his connection to the the Jays would be news to me, but the Royals inked him to one year and 5.2 million. And immediately that guy is like, okay, well, that's a reliever you can get for double A prospect X at the trade deadline. Like that's right. what the Royals do. They churn these guys out. He's, uh, you know, he's moderately interesting. Like he throws 94, which isn't a lot, but he's performs really well. And he's got that like funky, super long extension to his delivery. Uh, anyway, I think the the better question here, Ben, is especially with guys like Addison Barger uh, coming up and potentially, or Otto Lopez, even if you like the versatility uh, from the other side, you know, would you, if you were the Blue Jays, take a look at turning Kevin Biggio into a, a player somewhere else if that were available to you? Yeah, of course. And, and I, I, I think just about everybody would. And this is no offense to Kevin Biggio, whose skill set I actually, yeah, maybe not recently, but like I, I do like the the fact that he has the best eye in major league baseball i would i would like him to be capable of of hitting the occasional fastball in the zone that'd be nice too but yeah his his left-handed bat his patience that used to be a real not virtue because he wasn't a, a real good offensive player the last two years but it was it was something this team dearly lacked right not anymore and, yeah. and especially the left-handed part of it. Like, this guy factoring into the outfield, barring some injury, probably multiple injuries, is unlikely. What he is, is he's a left-handed option at second base, right? If if Whit Merrifield isn't your everyday guy and 
Santiago Espinal is your backup shortstop, and he can play all over the diamond as well. Mm-hmm. But I think the way Whit Merrifield played as a Blue Jay last year, like kind of, I, I would like to see him get an extended run to see if he can continue to take that job and run with it. And the idea that you would like platoon, and which you wouldn't, um, but the idea that you would give. Kevin Biggio many starts at all at second no. base. I just don't right, see it. Like I, no, I, he's right not a good defender at, anywhere. Yeah, Biggio, Merrifield, and Espinal are basically splitting time as your second baseman, your backup infielder, and your fourth outfielder. The way things look right now, and that's right. that's uh, a healthy role for two guys, but someone yeah. in that mix is going to be unhappy with that. And uh, yeah, the guy who's young and has a marketable skill and uh, still has a couple years of control. Could be a guy that brings back something else. I also think the Jays are in a weird spot with their bullpen anyway, where like they're already probably going to have to trade someone because like none of their relievers are optionable except the ones that are almost locks to make the team. Uh, So that's, that's a, I don't know. I I don't know if that one's going to happen, but it is interesting to, to consider him as a trade chip. Yep. All right. Time now for last call brought to you by bet rivers. It's a whole new game. Original six matchup down at Scotiabank arena. And the uh, Maple Leafs are minus 152 favorites against the Rangers as Austin Matthews, minus 109 anytime goal scorer, William Nylander, plus 148, and Mitch Marner to record at least two points, plus 145. Raptors, Kings, Sacramento, Kings, three-point home favorites? Only minus 157 on the money line? Okay. Fred Van Vliet, point total, 20.5. Pascal Siakam, 24.5. Scotty Barnes, 16 and a half and that was last call brought to you by bet rivers it's a whole new game so sportsnet is your one-stop shop for all your toronto teams tonight again you can watch blake murphy on the toronto raptors pre-game show raptors and sacramento what Kings. i'm hoping is the timing lines up where right as you flip off the leaf game to get over to the raptors game my face appears that i can't wait for that fingers crossed all right we'll be back tomorrow fan drive time sportsnet 590 the fan